I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 and then skipping down a bit to verse 34 as we continue our studies through the book of Exodus, which will carry us, yes, Jim, at least into 2024. So before we read from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our Lord, we thank You for this hour that we can gather to sing praises to Your name, to lift our prayers to You, knowing that they are heard not because of anything within not our own eloquence, our even sense of sincerity, but because and through the work of Christ our Lord. What confidence, what peace, what comfort that we can come to you at all times, casting burdens, worries, fears, anxieties upon you, pouring out our hearts to you in confidence, all because of the blessed work of our Savior. Grow us, we pray, even this evening uh, to a greater and greater understanding of the wonder and the comfort of prayer before the living God. It's in the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold all around, and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout the generations. It is most holy to the Lord. And then verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacti and onica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you, and the incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When I was a kid, my family would take annual trips from our home in New Mexico to visit my grandparents who lived in a small town in Iowa. We would usually go around Thanksgiving or Christmas season. It was about a thousand miles, about the same as it would be from here to southern Michigan. And I can still remember after two very long days in the car between my two sisters on either side, probably a lot of bickering along the way, I'm sure, that sense of relief of finally arriving at my grandparents' home. 
And as soon as I walked in, it would be those familiar smells that would sort of awaken memories from previous trips. Maybe you've had that same experience yourself with your senses stirring up memories. It must have been some of my grandma's favorite spices that she frequently cooked with in the kitchen or something that always seemed to be simmering, marinating on the stove, getting ready for dinner. There was the smell of the familiar comforter on the bed upstairs where I would sleep, and probably a bit of musty carpet and old weathered furniture down in the living room where we would sit around the car table and play games together late into the night. And as we approach that holiday season here in the fall, perhaps there are some of those familiar smells, some of those seasonal smells that help to awaken fond memories for you, that help to fill your heart with joy in the anticipation of gathering together once again with family and friends. And here with the altar of incense, we can only imagine the experience of the priests who entered the holy place with this sweet-smelling aroma filling the room, serving to heighten the senses serving to stir their heart toward greater wonder that they're coming into such close and intimate communion with the living God, with the Lord of the covenant. Now, a few chapters back, we read about some of the things here in the holy place that would, at the same time as this incense, would appeal to the other senses of the priest as he served there. The lampstand offering light, of course, the beautifully embroidered fabric of the curtains on either side and the ceiling above, the shimmering gold of the furniture, the bread and wine on the table, the bells upon the hem of the priest's garments, and now this sweet smell of incense from the altar. All of the senses truly engaged in this priestly task as the priest functions here on behalf of the people. Now, outside in the courtyard, the predominant smell was undoubtedly the animals that the children of Israel were bringing to be prepared to offer upon that bronze altar. But inside the holy place, it was a sweet-smelling aroma that filled the room. So, you could think of it like this, that we're really talking about two different realms, two different spheres. There's the world outside, but then when the priest crosses that threshold into the tabernacle. It's as though he's entering into this heavenly throne room, and the sights, the sounds, the feel, the taste, even the smell inside of the room would serve to heighten that distinction. That separation would be made clear. We could sort of call it an experiential awakening of the wonder of being so close to the presence of God. And so let's think about the altar itself and some of the things that we learn from the structure of this altar of incense. And so this is our first point this evening, simply the altar of incense. And so as we look at this altar, let's think first about the placements within God's Word in which we find the instruction about this altar. In other words, where do we find teaching about the altar of incense in the flow of the narrative of the book of Exodus? Remember, this is the Lord giving this instruction to Moses atop Mount Sinai. Now, you might remember that we learned about the other pieces of furniture inside of the tabernacle back in Exodus chapter 25. The Lord started with the most holy place and sort of worked our way outward to the furniture in the holy place, the things that were in the courtyard, the priest's garments with that emphasis being upon the high priest's garments, and then that lengthy 
period of consecration, that week-long ceremony when the priest was set apart for service. And so at first glance, it might seem to be a little bit out of place. Why are we returning now to furniture back inside of the tabernacle? Did God just forget to talk about the altar of incense? And sort of like an appendix, decided to go ahead and return to it now here in chapter 30. Did Moses, under divine inspiration, forget at that point to talk about the altar of incense when he was describing the other pieces of furniture and then just decided to add it here in chapter 30? Critical scholars will say that this is clear evidence of a redactor who just added this at a later point in time. But none of those arguments make sense. I think they're just way too simplistic. In fact, I would argue that it actually adds to the veracity of the text to find the instruction of the altar of incense here in chapter 30, because the most logical place, humanly speaking, would be to talk about it back in chapter 25. But very simply, we're reading about the, uh, of altar, the altar of incense now because this is where God has placed it in His Word. This is the order with which the Lord gave this instruction to Moses, the mediator, on Mount Sinai after the ordination and consecration of the priests. Well, the most obvious question then is why? Why are we talking about this altar of incense now and not earlier? Why learn about it after the consecration of the priests? Because this altar can only properly be used after the priesthood has been established. It can only be used after a mediator has been consecrated and made holy through the sprinkling of the shed blood of a substitute. And so the priests have been cleansed. The altar has been made holy. There is that fellowship meal with God that was enjoyed that we looked at before. And now, as almost a wonderful application or outflow of peace with God, there is now the intimacy of prayer, prayerful communion with the Lord that is represented in this altar of incense. Now, we'll return to this important theme of prayer in a few moments, but what we learn because of the placement of this instruction in the flow of divine revelation is simply this, that prayer is acceptable only because of and only through substitutionary sacrifice that has been made. But let's go on and think about what we learn about the altar of incense from its shape, from its actual structure. Now, we read that it wasn't a very large piece of furniture. Verse 2 tells us that it would be 18 inches in width and breadth, square along the top, and about three feet in height, about the height of your kitchen counter. It was similar to the other furniture here in the tabernacle, made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. Everything else inside of the tabernacle was either solid gold or overlaid with gold, and so that maintains this uniformity of design. And notice how the design of the altar of incense really resembles the bronze altar out in the courtyard in which sacrifices are laid. It's as though this altar of incense is a miniature version of that bronze altar. Both are square on top with horns on either corner, on each corner. And like everything else, the altar of incense was designed to be portable. There were rings placed in the legs and 
acacia wood poles overlaid with gold that would be inserted into those rings to be used for transport. Now, we'll come back to the significance of the connection between this altar of incense and the bronze altar, but let's think for a moment about the placement of this altar of incense within the tabernacle. It was not left to the Israelites to use their own ingenuity at any point. They might get perhaps tired of furniture being in the same place as we might do in our own homes, but they're not left to rearrange things, but things are to be placed in the same spot every time the structure was established. So where was this altar of incense to be placed in relation to the other pieces of furniture? And what do we learn from this? Well, verse 6 tells us that inside of the holy place, that's the outer room, that the altar of incense is to be placed toward the back, up against that veil that separates those two inner rooms of the tabernacle. And so it will be right between the table of showbread on the right and the lampstand on the left. And so just on the other side of that veil was the mercy seat, which sat atop the Ark of the Covenant. And so the closest piece of furniture to the Ark of Incense would not have been the table or the lampstand, but actually the mercy seat just beyond the veil that contained, of course, the tablets of stone. Philip Ryken comments, this means that when the priests stood at the altar of incense, they were standing right in front of God. With the exception of the high priest who was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies once a year, this was the closest they would ever get to the glorious presence of God. So that's its design, and that's the placement of the altar of incense. But one more thing to reflect on for a moment, and that is how the altar of incense would be used. Now, throughout these last six chapters, as the Lord has been speaking with Moses from Sinai, throughout these chapters we have learned a little bit about what the priest's responsibilities will be when everything is constructed. And we read more detail when we get to the book of Leviticus. And so, so far we've learned that the priest is to keep the lampstand filled with oil. Morning and evening he is to replenish the oil, trim the wicks. He is to replace the showbread kept upon the table there on the right on a weekly basis while he eats some of that bread that will be the old bread as it's replaced by that fresh bread as well as drink um, some of the wine kept there. He is to offer daily sacrifices morning and evening upon the bronze altar. And now added to these daily responsibilities is to tend to the altar of incense morning and evening when he goes to take care of the lampstand. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Now, of course, every piece of furniture constructed is only for its intended special purpose. And each piece of furniture teaches us something important about our relationship with God. And it's very important that God's people follow his instruction precisely, not just in the construction of each of these elements, not only in the placement of them in the tabernacle, but in how these things are used. And so verse 9 tells us that the children of Israel are not to use their own independent reasoning by bringing other things and placing them upon this altar of incense. There is not to be a burnt offering, a grain offering, a drink offering. Nothing else other than incense is to be placed upon it. 
And then down in verse 34, we read about this formula or this recipe for this incense, this very special blend of spices. And this is the only type of incense that is to be used. You're not to bring your leftover incense if for whatever reason you have some lying around. You're not to bring your incense that you may have purchased at the black market, even if you got a good deal on it in case it was used for some sort of pagan ritual. And don't use this special blend of incense for anything else. It may smell wonderful, but it's not to be used outside of the tabernacle for perfume or otherwise. And this is no light matter. As we read in verse 38, one could be cut off from the people of Israel if there was a violation of this teaching. Now, later in Leviticus, in chapter 16, we learn that Aaron is to take coals from underneath the bronze altar and use those coals to light the daily incense. Obviously, he's not to just grab those coals, but he's to use different vessels to carry those hot coals, bring them out of that fire, and use those coals to light the incense inside of the tabernacle. And we learn something very interesting, I think, in Leviticus chapter 9. We read there that as the priests are ordained in that week-long consecration ceremony, that at the end of that week, the Lord indicates His approval with all that has transpired by fire coming presumably out from the most holy place to consume the altar, the sacrifice upon the altar. And really, this is the same fire that is used now for the altar of incense. It was there that that fire originated from the Lord Himself. And every time the Israelites traveled, they were to keep those coals hot and rekindle them when everything was erected once again. You might remember that infamous account of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, in Leviticus chapter 10, who took unauthorized fire to light the incense in violation of the teaching here in verse 9. And for that, the Lord consumes them in His justice. Clearly, the Lord cares about how we approach Him in worship. And so, what is symbolized in all of this? Well, that gets us to our second point this evening, an altar for prayer. The altar of incense is an altar for prayer. Now, there has not been universal acceptance, even among biblical scholars, that the altar of incense symbolizes prayer. There have been all sorts of ideas throughout church history thrown out there. Perhaps this is just a tribute to the Lord, a sign of His holy presence. It's a, a symbol of royalty because kings would have incense burning in their royal chambers. And so perhaps God is just conveying His kingly role among the people of Israel. Maybe, as some have suggested, that the incense is used just as an air freshener, sort of like an ancient Near Eastern plug-in that you might put outside of your teenage son's room to keep the stench at bay. There are those smells from the outside, as we sort of thought about earlier, that might make their way inside of the tabernacle. On a hot day, perhaps the priest himself is ripe with all of these layers of clothing that he's supposed to wear. And as blood is sprinkled upon the pieces of furniture over the years, perhaps that accumulates and sort of takes on a pungency of its own. And so maybe the incense is just there to cover all of this. 
Or maybe the burning incense creates a, a thick smoke within the room to veil the majesty and the mystery of the Lord. One scholar, John Durham, has gone so far as to say, of all the purposes that have been proposed for the burning of incense, none provides a satisfactory explanation. However, I think there is a satisfactory explanation. I don't think it needs to be that complicated. The altar of incense is an altar for prayer. Its location, again, it's just there next to the mercy seat beyond that veil. The mercy seat in which one would speak with the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews draws such a close connection between the Ark of the Covenants and the altar of incense that he sees them both together in the same location. It is that throne of grace where the Lord hears the prayers of His people. You see, all that's needed for life and godliness is right there, contained upon the tablets of stone. All that's needed for life and godliness is that intimate fellowship and communion with the living God. Now, it's true, there are no explicit texts of Scripture that say something like the altar of incense is the altar of prayer, but I think it's made clear in places like Psalm 141. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. In Luke chapter 1, verse 8, Zechariah is chosen by lots among the priests to go and offer the daily incense inside of the temple. The people are outside praying at that exact prescribed time. And I think the point is that their prayers that are happening on the outside are to mirror what the priest is doing inside of the temple as he offers incense before the Lord. In Revelation 5 verse 8, the golden bowls of incense are equated with the prayers of the saints. We read the same thing in Revelation 8 verse 3. Incense is equated with the prayers of the saints rising before the Lord. And so if this altar of incense is a place of prayer, if this is part of the priest's responsibilities, well, that might be a nice little bit of nugget of biblical insight so that if you're sitting through Scott's Old Testament overview class on Sunday morning when he gets to Exodus next year, you might remember that and throw it out when he asks that question. But what does it have to do today? What does it have to do with our own prayers to the Lord? Is there any ongoing relevance for us as we think about the teaching from Exodus chapter 30? Well, this is our third point this evening, which is just lessons for prayer. Let's think through some lessons that we learn here that might be of help to us in our own prayers with the Lord. The first lesson is that there is only one way to pray. Now, to say that there is only one way to pray does not mean, of course, that there is only one posture that one ought to take in prayer or that one posture is more holy or better than another, nor is it to say that certain words ought or ought not to be used and uttered in prayer, but to say that there is only one way to pray is merely to affirm that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We read that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. 
And so Exodus 30 teaches us that Jesus is the only way. And we see the connection between the bronze altar and the altar of incense, which helps us to see that Jesus is the only way. These two altars, again, they resemble one another in their basic structure and appearance. There is morning and evening sacrifices offered on the bronze altar, and the smoke that rises from that bronze altar is an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And at the exact same time, there is incense being offered on the altar inside of the tabernacle morning and evening, and those prayers are a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord because of the shed blood of another. The blood that is poured out upon the bronze altar to make it holy is the same blood that is used on the annual Day of Atonement to make the altar of incense holy. So notice what this teaches us, that it is the work of Jesus upon the cross which cleanses the sinner. It is the work of Christ on the cross which removes our defilement. And it is on the basis of that shed blood, that same blood, that we have access to the Lord in prayer. It is through the meritorious shed blood of Jesus that our prayers come to the living God. Here, I think, is a great summary of this lesson from Patrick Fairbairn. All acceptable prayer must have its foundation in the manifested grace of a redeeming God. And so this is the lesson for us, you see. Confident prayers can be offered to God only through the shed blood of a a sufficient sacrifice, an offering acceptable to the Lord. And as our Savior offered up Himself upon the cross, that was a fulfillment of what the bronze altar pointed to. And as that temple veil was torn apart at his death, that becomes the fulfillment of the altar of incense. As now our risen Savior lives to continually intercede for those for whom he has died. In something I read, it was put like this. The bronze altar speaks of the death of Christ, and we learn of the great value of his sacrifice The golden altar speaks of the living, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ, and we learn of the value of His intercession. So you see the two altars speak of the death and resurrection power of the gospel, as Jesus is the only way to pray. And a second lesson that sort of ties into this If there is only one way to pray through the Lord Jesus, then prayers are only heard and answered through faith in Christ. Now, we live in an age in which mankind is pretty full of himself. You don't have to read very much or look very far to see that. We've been led to believe that we are self-sufficient, that we are autonomous, that we are in control of our lives. But every once in a while in the Lord's providence, something happens around the world that exposes the futility of that presumption. Wildfires in Maui back in August, a Category 5 hurricane that just hit Acapulco, 
and of course, horrific acts of terrorism in Israel. And those things reveal cracks in that presumption of self-sufficiency. And when we sense our helplessness in times like that, we're told, even by the atheist, even by the skeptic, when there's nothing else that we can do, we are told that we should pray. So the question is, does God hear all prayers that are given to Him and answer all prayers that are offered to Him? What should we think of the prayers offered by an unbeliever? What are we to think of the prayers offered by a Muslim or by a Jew who does not profess faith in Christ? Is it enough for prayers to simply be full of sincerity? Well, what Exodus 30 teaches us is that it matters through whom we are praying. If prayers are offered to the Lord God, no matter how well-intentioned, but those prayers are not through eyes of faith by those who trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then on what basis are we presuming that we can come to God? Now, of course, God hears all things. Of course, He knows all things. Of course, words uttered, whether in prayer or otherwise, are heard by the omnipresent and omniscient God. But the issue here is not whether God hears The question is whether those prayers are received with fatherly attention. And what we've been learning here in Exodus is that the only way to have peace with God and fellowship with the Lord is if the penalty that we deserve for sin is removed. Forgiveness must come first through an all-sufficient blood sacrifice in order for those prayers to be acceptable before the throne of grace. Remember Hebrews 10, 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. He has opened that curtain through His flesh. He has sprinkled our hearts clean from our evil conscience. He has washed our bodies with pure water. And so we draw near in assurance. And so when we end our prayers in Jesus' name, That's not simply an indication that we are finished, like we might say goodbye when we want to get off the phone, or to sign off a formal letter by writing sincerely. Instead, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are stating the basis for our prayers. Jesus has atoned for our sin. Jesus has granted us peace with God. Jesus continues to mediate on our behalf. It is the work of Jesus upon the cross that makes those prayers acceptable and sweet to the Lord. We sang earlier from John Newton, Approach my soul the mercy seat, where Jesus answers prayer. There humbly fall before His feet, for none can perish there. And so what is it that gives us the right to come to Him in prayer? What gives us the confidence that He will hear and that we will answer? Well, we plead nothing else other than the gracious merit of Christ. This is the only proper basis for prayer, the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross. And the third lesson that we learn here is that God desires our prayers. This sweet-smelling aroma of incense 
conveys that desirability. He wants to hear your prayers. Scripture tells us to cast all of our anxieties upon Him because He cares for us. We are told to pray to Him continually. It is right for us to pray about everything, to be constant in prayer, to continue steadfastly in prayer, as the Scriptures tell us. Just think of this. It is the God of creation, the sovereign King who rules over all, the Lord of glory, who wants to hear from you and from me because He is a Father to us, His children. Perhaps you've had this experience with with young ones, if you're a parent or grandparent, or even if you have nieces and nephews, when you're away from that young one for a time and you come back together, you just want to hear about all of the things that have transpired in your time that you've been apart, even if it's just a day that you've been at work or they've been at school. You want to hear about their day. You want to hear what they've learned. You want to hear what they thought, what their experiences were. You want to hear about the things that weigh upon them. Sometimes it doesn't matter if that conversation is weighty or even feels frivolous at times. You just want to talk to them. You just want to spend time with them. And if that's true on a human plane, on that relational level, then how much more our Father in heaven who never tires of hearing of the prayers of His children, who is perfectly able, loving, and wise to answer our prayers according to His infinite kindness. Our call to worship this evening was from Psalm 62. It's there in verse 8 that we are told to pour out our heart before Him, for He is your refuge. There may be times when we don't feel very eloquent in the use of our words. Maybe we're not as experienced or as mature as we would like to be in our prayers, and we feel a bit ashamed of that. And at times, we may not even know what to say or how to say it. The instruction from our catechism is very pastoral, very comforting, as it simply tells us prayer is offering up our desires to God. And the more that we are in His Word, feeding upon that Word and reflecting upon it, those desires become more and more in line with what the Lord tells us in the Scriptures. And those are the things that we pour out to Him in prayer. And so we can pour out our hearts to Him. We can unburden those longings before Him. We can express those worries that are upon mind and heart. And as we meditate upon the nature of the Lord, that helps to stir our affections toward Him. And just as this incense was to be offered morning and evening, what a great practice to develop in our own lives, coming to Him first thing in the morning, praising His name and thanking Him for another day of life that He is pleased to give to us, though we know that we are undeserving. And at the close of each day, to reflect back upon the way that He has cared for us, provided for us, and protected us, thanking Him for the many blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. And so there is one way to pray. Prayers are heard and answered through Christ alone. Our God desires to hear our prayers. And one final lesson, and that is that prayer is the most wondrous and glorious privilege. 
I think again about the placement of this altar of incense. Right there, just beyond the veil, is the mercy seat. And the priest standing there at the altar of incense is as close to God as he ever would be this side of heaven. Michael Barrett points out, isn't this what prayer still is for us? Prayer takes believers as close to God as they can get this side of heaven. And think about all of the meticulous details that we're reading here, down to the formula of the type of incense that should be used, and the restrictive nature that only the priest and only that high priest could go and venture further in once per year. All of this meticulous work, all of these intricate details have been abrogated in Christ Jesus. What wonder that you can come to Him in full assurance. What amazement that you can pray without ceasing and never overburden the living God. And what comfort that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And while His work of atonement is, of course, finished upon the cross as He sat down at the right hand of the Father, His mediatorial work continues, for He always lives to make intercession. And oftentimes there's this question that as pastors, as elders we hear in the church, perhaps you've heard this from others, why even spend time in prayer? If God knows all things anyway, if His eternal decree is fixed from all eternity past, then why pray? It's not as though I'm going to change God's mind. Well, frankly, what a shallow, superficial, self-oriented view of prayer, isn't it? Look at what Jesus has done that that veil might be opened. Look at what He has done to bring you peace with God. Why would you not want to come to Him with a constant heart of gratitude, praise, adoration, and thanksgiving? Why would you not want to come to a heavenly Father who delights to hear the cries of His children? And because of the wondrous privilege that we have in coming to the Lord, we can make big requests of Him. We can pray for hard hearts to be changed even from those who seem to be so full of anger and hatred toward the living God. We can pray for the spread of the gospel throughout the world, even in lands that seem to be overrun with ideologies that are so opposed to God's truth. We can pray for His provision, and we can trust in His goodness to give to us that which we need. We can pray for His will in our lives to be made evident. We can ask Him to forgive our sins and to guard our hearts against foolishness. We can ask Him to transform our thoughts and redirect our longings, and we can trust Him for all of these things. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to Your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. May God be pleased to work in the hearts and lives of His children that ever-increasing longing to come to that blessed throne of grace.